You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, the audio supplement to our blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. In episode 19, find out to what extent pin-up art or horror can have a bearing on or even lend distinction to paleo art, as Mark speaks later to paleo artist Zubin Eric Dutter. Before that, in complete tonal and stylistic contrast, our vintage dinosaur art title this month is Hilary Stebbing's Extinct Animals, published by Puffin in 1946. But first, uh, there's an exciting new Thyreophorum doing the rounds. Or is it, Niels? Or is it, indeed? Uh, you probably didn't miss it, but uh, if we don't bring it up, you'll wonder why we didn't. After Spico Melis and Stego Euros, here's another very, very weird southern armored dinosaur, Jacapil Kaniyukura. Am I, am I saying that right? Jacapil Kaniyukura. Probably. Just, just Karen, we, we never pronounce oh, yeah. anything correctly. No, no. It okay. sounds I, good. He does, but I certainly don't. Well, I, I try. <laughs> Jacapil Kaniyukura from, not Japan, but from the... Uh, Candaleros Formation of Argentina, and published in Nature Scientific Reports by Facundo Riguetti et al. This is a proper weirdo, guys. Uh, this one quickly took the internet by storm. It's been reconstructed as a small, bipedal, armored herbivore, about a meter and a half long, with a very strong jawline and a low-slung body. The authors interpret it... Um, as an archaic thyreophorin, related maybe to a Skeletosaurus or Scutellosaurus, uh, the latter, of course, being the uh, other bipedal armored dinosaur that we can think of. But here's the real kicker. The Candelirus formation is late Cretaceous. Uh, it's early late Cretaceous, but still, it's a uh, Cenomanian, to be exact. And this uh, Scutellosaurus-looking critter, it's not exactly something you would expect to be walking around in the Cretaceous, but it was sharing its habitat with things like uh, Giganotosaurus, Andesaurus, the Titanosaur, and Butre-Raptor. I'm probably not saying that right either. Many an artist have already tried their hand at reconstructing it. Now, a big caveat, the skeletal reconstruction of Jacopil that the authors provided is extremely speculative, which is obvious if you look at how much of it is gray. We really didn't find all that much of it. Um, other authors have suggested maybe it could be not a Tyreophorin at all, as its jaw, if anything, looks more marginocephalian, which would make it a weirdo in a completely different way. One thing is for sure, even with all we know about dinosaurs, they can still surprise us. The paper is open access, and a link is on the show notes page, as ever. I suppose the thing is, you had these bipedal um well, obviously, apart from Pachycephalosaurus, you also have other bipedal marginocephalians or cephalians into yes. the, the latest Cretaceous. So into the latest Cretaceous, be, but none of them are armored, are they? But no, no, that's that's that'd be the weird part about it. Then that it's got yeah. these osteoderms and things. I mean, which is pretty wild if that's the case. But, yeah. but then if it's a thoriophora and you have this like ghost lineage going back for God knows how long for uh, <laughs> bipedal <laughs> thyri or like yeah. small thoriophorans, or this it sort of. Re-evolved bipedalism or some wacky thing. How many of those late Cretaceous bipedal, uh, you know, ceratopsians are from South America, though? Yeah, right. they're not really there, are they? That's, <laughs> I don't yeah. really associate them I with mean, South America. No. This is going to be extraordinary, whatever the case. And uh, 
Exactly. It's a matter of watching this space. That's it. I look forward to all the uh, good-natured arguments among various scientists <laughs> for the next few years. Oh, it, of it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if this guy got an entire clade named after it. Yep. And it would be it's just stuck somewhere on the phylogenetic tree, you know, just like, well, we have to include this thing in the matrix. We have no idea. Just, just somewhere. Wonderful. Uh, thanks, Niels. And uh, Mark, uh, the changing shape of the window into Arcosaur souls, in a manner of speaking. Well, yes, here we have functional and ecomorphological evolution of orbit shape in Mesozoic Arcosaurs is driven by body size and diet by uh, Stefan Lautenschlager. Um, published in Nature Communications, which actually got a surprising amount of media coverage for something apparently so, you know, that would have a relatively, let's say, specific interest among the general public. You wouldn't think it would necessarily garner that much media attention, but of course it had the Rex appeal. You can um, you can shoehorn T-Rex in there. So Well, it's, it's oh, more yeah. than just shoehorned in. T-Rex is actually quite important in this paper. Um, of course, it's looking at the changing shape of orbits and in particular the trend for large well not just dinosaurs but large carnivorous archosaurs um, which includes pseudosuchians if you think about postosuchus for example um and and the like that to get to get this um sort of keyhole or figure of eight pinch shaped orbit um and the paper analyzes the orbits of um as i said dinosaurs pterosaurs pseudosuchians and crocodilomorphs there's a particular emphasis on how this uh pinch shaped orbit um, affects well the skull and why they may have evolved such a thing with lots of um, computer modeling and analysis um, and it does as i said it evolves you could it evolved it did evolve convergently among a lot of different unrelated groups so as i said you had these um, pseudosuchians and then among theropods you had lots of unrelated large theropods you know everything from abelosaurs i mean the paper scorpio veneta is mentioned and of course right. t-rex which was a solurosaur so very distantly related. And they both have this amazingly pinched um, eye socket. So why did they all seem to evolve this? Basically, Altenschlager um, notes that these, all these archosaur lineages start off with quite a generalized skull with a round orbit. Um, and indeed, a lot of the juveniles, as we know, of things like T-Rex, Tarbosaurus, had round orbits, sort of oval, big or oval orbits. Um, but then... As they became more and more uh, derived and larger, they, you know, the orbits sort of uh, changed shape. And you, as I said, you see that in a few different lineages. So basically, um, he employed various techniques. Um, among them, he created a computer model of a generalized archosaur skull um, and then modified it with different orbit shapes to see how that would affect the um, kind of stresses, the forces that would be put on it. Um, right. He also reused an existing model of, yes, a T-Rex skull. It's a model organism. <laughs> yeah, well, highly detailed, and it's perfect for this, obviously. Um, a highly detailed, accurate model of, I believe it's Stan, uh, its skull, and analyzed that. Also um, modified that as well into a version that has a giant round orbit. And so it leads us to delightful figure 8B in the paper, which is T-Rex with a big googly eye in its face. Which googly is, eyes. Um, yeah, big googly eyes. And basically, uh, he as I said, he found that pinch shape um, helped reduce biting stresses around the skull um, in the lacrimal and post-orbital bones in particular. Um, and there's a tendency for carnivores as they get larger to develop the shape. Um, it does, of course, reduce the size that the eyeball can actually sit in. But given that these animals already had such big heads in absolute terms, the actual size of the eyeball, of course, was still large. I mean, if you think about 
T-Rex, uh, models of T-Rex, its eyes always look lost on its face. If you see, uh, especially not life-size, but sort of scaled down models, its eyes always look like piggy and tiny. But of course, we know that really it had huge eyeballs. It's just that it also had enormous head. Yeah. Um, so it didn't particularly matter. It didn't lose anything from the eye, you know, the space the eye could occupy being reduced in that way. Um, furthermore, um, Lautenschlager notes that uh, large and well-developed eyes are physiologically expensive and maintaining them may consume up to 15% of an animal's energy budget. So there would have been a further downside to having such a ridiculous giant googly eye. Um, and that would have been <laughs> very energetically expensive to maintain. So there's, there are these benefits to which, and that's why it evolved over and over again. There are these benefits to um, pinching the orbit in as the skull gets bigger, reducing the amount of size the eye can occupy. Um, but it also reduces the stresses placed on the skull when the animal's, you know, biting something to death. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> what else would a T-Rex be doing? Exactly. That's what it did all day long. Just went around in this, you know, unstoppable killing machine tank. The you know. ultimate life form. And there is a bit of, uh, you know, there is some um, commentary on here on, on pterosaurs as well, um, and how their diversity sort of, uh, you know, peaks in almost the early Cretaceous and then uh, sort of decreased later on, I guess, because pterosaur diversity in general decreased. Sort of in the late Cretaceous, um, angry pterosaur researchers can leave comments <laughs> telling me I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> in fact, I'm doing it right now. All right, okay. But yeah, but there is a, an emphasis here on, and I mean, all of the modeling is mainly around um, so the different eyeball shapes and sort of generalized archosaurs, which applies more to dinosaurs and um, crocodile, well, pseudosuchians and crocodilomorphs. Um, crocodilomorphs, of course, have orbits modified in a different way. Um, and yeah, as I said, convergently involved in lots of different groups that were unrelated to one another, um, as is evident on a particular diagram in here, um, which just shows that they were spread out throughout the Archosaur family tree, all these animals with the um, pinched eye sockets. But yeah, interesting bit of research. And as I said, surprising amount of media coverage on it, um, which may not have got into all the nitty gritty. And it's open access, so you can go and read it. Go and read it online. Wee. Hooray. Wee. Wonderful. That's really fascinating. Thank you, Mark. Uh, and finally, uh, a short but sweet news item from me. Uh, a new paper by Dalman et al. describes Bisticeratops frosiorum, a new ceratopsid chasmosaurine from the Upper Cretaceous Farmington member of the Kirtland Formation, New Mexico. Named for the Bisti Denazin wilderness area of San Juan Basin, the holotype specimen consists of an almost complete skull, which was discovered in 1975. It was originally thought to be a pentaceratops, which it very closely resembles, even though pentaceratops is some two million years older. But uh, phylogenetic analysis has since recovered it, according to the paper's abstract, as a sister species to the unnamed almond formation chasmosaurine, and as a member of a potentially new southern clade of chasmosaurines outside of Triceratopsini and distinct from other southern Laramidian chasmosaurines such as Pentaceratops. And that, my friends, is that a beautiful and presumably rare new ceratopsian given the little understood fauna of the Farmington member, adding to the diversity of chasmosaurines of the Western Interior Basin of North America. And with a name that lends itself to being playfully called Bestie Ceratops, as the online paleosphere <laughs> has already taken to doing, this new arrival upon the scene is indeed love in the time of chasmosaurs. The paper is uh, published by ResearchGate okay. and is open access. Thank you. You see what I did there? Well done. Yeah. 
yes, very well done. done. Yep. And by the way, I hear that Collector already have a toy of it in production. So, uh, but of course they have. Of course they have. That's a joke, by the way. I, I, I don't know that. Oh. They probably do. Oh, Mark, you disappointed us. <laughs> it's a ceratopsy, and every scrap gets a genus. <laughs> now you're implying that the um, authors have just named any old scrap and given it, you know, given it a name. Which, uh, it's ah, fair enough. It's a skull. It's a skull. We fair will calm down there, Greg clear. Paul. <laughs> we will steer clear of this, I think. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> right. On to dinosaur hunt. <laughs> Did you know that there are four species of Tyrannosaurus? Shut up. Yeah, of course Vintage there are. Extinct Animals, written and illustrated by Hilary Stebbing. Another true vintage title. Hooray! From 1946. Where would we like to start? Well, uh, let's, start with, let's start with the author. Uh, Hilary Stebbing, born... 1915, died 1996, an artist, illustrator, uh, and author of mostly children's books, mostly um, in the Puffin series, just like this one. Um, I believe she was British, but I'm not entirely sure. Well, I obviously want to talk about this cover on this book, because it's the Invicta Stegosaurus toy, and yet somehow many years before the Invicta Stegosaurus toy was actually made... It's quite incredible. It really is remarkable, yeah. I suppose it's not really because it's deriv- they're both derivative of the same sort of paleo art. And I think if it wasn't for that colour similarity, it would be... Um... And of course, the Invictus was made in different colours, just that they, mo- they were mostly made in that sort of peach plastic. We, we, which... we usually get that lovely cooked salmon coloured one. Um, yeah. Yeah. The resemblance is So, yes. I suppose, again, it's because they're following that um, marsh old school 19th century mold for stegosaurus mold so to speak Short, shortish tail short neck um, very hump backed very low to the ground it's just yeah classic sort of style of the marsh reconstruction and and stegosaurs from the 19th century up until what the 70s people eat well even then maybe into the 80s people started to change the way they were reconstructed we didn't really see um any kind of radical change until the 90s and a bit more about them was revealed that they had longer necks but anyway i yeah. digress considerably about this <laughs> so uh yeah <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's amusing that that's so similar to a completely unrelated toy that came later for um we're in the 1940s uh world war ii has just ended dinosaur paleontology at this point in history is you know completely dead <laughs> there's almost no working dinosaur paleontologist at this time you know your 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 visual reference material is basically going to begin and end with um, with night and marsh mm. and cope and yes. those kinds of people. Maybe a little bit of Burian if you're lucky. Um, well, there is not a lot of Burian. Was in he it. working at this point? Besides, actually, no. We'll see. I think his work about, really yeah. didn't catch on on a large scale until the 1970s. I mean, he was he was on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Nobody had known his That's work true. yet. Yeah, his work, a lot of his work escaped, did it until a bit later, I suppose. But this is obviously quite of its time, but also not really that bad. I mean, well, you you say that, but I think I'm arguing that what does of this time even mean when there's so little out there? That's true. I'm thinking more obvious copies of um, earlier works, for example. Um, the the Iguanodon was basically ubiquitously Neve Parkerish from uh, for a long time. Um, this Iguanodon looks actually quite i don't know its proportions aren't that bad it has quite robust forelimbs even seems to have a beak yeah, compared to neve parker i don't think it looks much like like neve parker at all i, I think it no looks nothing more is more modern like parker's, parkers is a lot more uh obviously retrograde whereas this does look like a 
for its time, a very almost modern style reconstruction. It has quite large thighs, mm, muscular tails. Yes. It's and, and as, as I said, the proportions, the forelimbs are robust. Um, well, often they would be understated in a lot of reconstructions back then. And yeah, the neck is quite chunky, although it doesn't have any kind of lizardy dewlap or anything like that going on. Um, which hey, it might have had anyway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's hmm, it's an interesting one. And as I um, said before, it it does have. Again, a sort of toy-like quality to it. It does. I think partly because it's stylized in the way that it is. Well, yes. I think that's quite characteristic of all Hillary's illustrations, I would say. I was going to say that she clearly had better reference material for some animals than others. Like, clearly she had really good references available for the Iguanodon and probably for quite understandable reasons. But then when you look at the Brachiosaurus, it, yeah, it does have, okay, its back does slope downwards and it's, Forelimbs are longer, but then the head is just a sort of vague sauropody lump. Generic stuck, sauropod stuck up head. There. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't have any evidence of the um, big nasal crest. Right, which head. is... Again, your your um, African brachiosaur at that point, Brachiosaurus branchi, that would have been on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Yeah, it, would have, it was in East Germany, wasn't it? <laughs> so I guess there would have been photos of it, but um, maybe hard to tell depending on the material you had. I think looking at this, it was probably referenced from uh, Otenio Abel. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Whereas the Diplodocus, again, is a bit more, yeah, it looks kind of more as expected. <laughs> but, uh, also, interesting that the Brachiosaurus is out on dry land. I suppose so we can see it better, but it's not then, um, we haven't got the explicit depiction of, um, you know, underwater dwelling amphibious Brachiosaurus no. that you might expect from this time. And I mean, the, the Diplodocus is merely wading. Getting but that's quite it. Yeah. style. This is also something which which Niels um, has pointed out before in in his blog post that it's not it's not submerged to the degree that it uh, is suggestive of it needing water as support. You know, it's just it's just going to play, have a little you know a little wade. It's very nice. The the Diplodocus. It's it's, it's just all around very nice. It's charming. It's great. Yeah, I, love the- I love it. I like the sort of cartoonish depictions of the plants. Um, it has a real, it's very unique. And of course, the squiggly clouds. Yeah, the little pebbles. Yeah, I, I love all of those things, the, especially the background elements. Um, they are very redolent of, of various printmaking disciplines, which, um, as it turns out, it, it stands to reason because Hilary Stebbing, as I discovered, uh, did use a lot of printmaking methods in her illustrations, like uh, woodcuts and lino cuts, among other things. And also just the way the color illustrations are drawn, which I have to say I much prefer to her black and white ones, which um, uh, the the hatched line of her black and white drawings um, don't, to me at least, uh, stand out from anything else uh, of the period or, no. or from, you know. And um, but the color illustrations, and again, the there's a lot of what looks to me like these were drawn directly onto the lithographic stone with a crayon um, in some of the shading here. And, and again, that's, that's another uh, printmaking uh, method there. That pteranodon in particular, yeah, what you were just referring to. Yes, exactly. Yeah, very much crayon on the stone sort of uh, feeling to it in the shading mm-hmm. there. Yeah, that's, that's another great. And again, that's one of the color pieces, and it's another great one. Yes, um, the pteranodon is actually monochrome interestingly isn't it it's just a sort of yellowish color with um, dark shading which is 
intriguing. Yeah. But there's a color background. I mean, this I'm sure will be owing a great deal to to post-war uh, printmaking, uh, not printmaking, pr- uh, publishing uh, restrictions, um, mm. which would only allow uh, a very a rudimentary uh, set of colors um, in in the recovery, as it were, of the period. But then, really working within, well, working with those limitations. And um, almost exactly. making them a strength of the artwork mm-hmm. rather than a, a, um, a restriction, a drawback. It's that's right, or a limitation. That's what I'm trying to say. It's uh, yeah. I mean, the I really love the background foliage in the Archaeopteryx. Oh, sorry, Archaeornis. Archaeornis. <laughs> uh, that's right. Yeah, it's labeled Archaeornis. Yeah, it's Archaeornis. It's Archaeopteryx. Um, if you look at the background of that. Or is it? Um, Maybe it's overlumped. Who knows? Or is it? it, it is, yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> well, it currently is. Yeah. So, but no, but the, the foliage in the background of that is um, lovely. I, I'm sure what it reminds me of. I'm sure you can it's read. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. What do you say about that, Nati, in terms of techniques being employed? Because you're the... Oh, I just think it's... I mean, I mean speaking in, in general of her style... Um, I, I love this where you see the, the transition from the sort of post-Art Deco, um, almost geometric stylization, which is being softened here and, and easing their way into the sort of mid-century style that, that we are now so familiar with. All this, I think, is, is really distinctive and beautiful to me. The, the foliage in the Archeonis illustration is just, um, I mean, it's helped by the fact that these, these curling uh, fronds of uh, ferns, uh, we, we imagine, in contrast to the strong stylization of the other illustrations, this, you know, harks back to a softer, almost turn of the century, turn of the 20th century um, treatment of organic forms. Um, and it just makes for a lovely, uh, a lovely contrast and a lovely, again, a softness, um, which, yeah, I, I just, yeah, as you say, I think it's beautiful. It does really contrast with the less detailed, more more stylized foliage that you see in the background of the other scenes. I mean, mm. like I said, almost cartoonish in places, the way that it's um, so vague. I'm not saying it's bad at all, but it's not um, not intended to be highly realistic, whereas that clearly is a lot more realistic in the depiction of the um, of the fronds, as you say. Yeah. It's an interesting contrast. Another thing I wanted to flag up uh, in the Archeornis the diagrams that compare uh, the wing shape of pterosaurs, bats, and birds, which yes. is very effective. And mm, yes, I wonder why more books don't do that. Yeah, I've said a few times. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just not normally. All you'll often see are the are particular bones highlighted in the same color on each diagram. And I want to sort of talk about some more of these, aside from the artistic techniques, some more of these reconstructions, like the. Triceratops, which seems to have, um, apart from looking a bit sleepy, it um, it has and having a rather sort of small head, even given that in proportion, it also has an interesting uh, sort of smooth frill, which I don't know is just sort of almost. Um, again, I assume it's meant to be sort of covered in keratin, which you do see occasionally. Well, less so in art these days. I think there are some artists who have experimented with it like that, or even believe that that was quite likely for it. Um, yeah. But it, it did happen more in the earlier um, sort of pre-Renaissance days. People would give it this correctness cover over the seemingly over the entire frill as well as the horns. But it, always, it has so many grooves and everything in it. It looks almost like it was drawn from a, uh, you know, from a mounted skeleton like, or, or a photo of a skull. <laughs> and uh, yeah, all those all those think, grooves I, just remind me of, a, of a, almost of a bear 
fossil. I don't know um, if that's just an emphasis yeah. on the a technique to emphasize the shape. Well, to begin with, Hillary um, was a children's illustrator by trade. And uh, and I think we, we have to view this book through that lens. Yeah, definitely. This, this happens to be a children's illustrator who is doing a, a book about uh, extinct animals rather than someone yeah. uh, who was more strongly informed towards paleo art. And and I think the, the the rendering of that frill on the Triceratops is probably a combination of what you suggested, Mark, of, of seeing photographs of the fossil and of just trying to suggest the shape as, as, as simple as that um, without going into any more detail about what, you know, what it's supposed to look like, whether it's, whether it's scaled or keratinous or anything. I don't think any of those considerations even uh, uh, were accounted for. Yeah, I mean, uh, Hilary Stebbing ended up doing a book about living animals some eight years later. The illustrations for that can be seen on the Instagram page. You know, those images, those illustrations are just as stylized as these, of course. Uh, by mm. definition, she had better reference material for them. Yeah. You mentioned that maybe there was a lack of, or the sort of contrast between scaly skin and keratin wasn't really considered. But then the frill area, I mean, you compare it with the horns. The horns are obviously meant to be covered in keratin because that's an assumption you just make about horns, which is fair enough. Um, and they certainly were. Um, but then they more closely resemble the frill than the frill resembles any of the skin patterns on the creature. So that is true. scales all over the place yeah. and hatching. Um, even down to the tip of the mouth, which appears to be scaly rather than having a beak, um, which is interesting. Um, but mm, well, it's sort of yes. a beak shape, but then there's no, um, there seems to be no keratin there. It doesn't look like one of the horns. But yeah, the frill does contrast with that. And I do wonder if it's, uh, or it may just be copied from some other illustration. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, I've got to wonder about the process mm, there, where that mm. came from. But uh, Yeah, that is a good point. What else have we got in here? Oh, I think the plesiosaur is adorable, by the way. It'll be the sweetest plesiosaur I've ever seen. It looks so happy. It's just yeah, chowing it's, down it's, on the fish. It's so friendly, just like the Diplodocus. Yeah. There's a little happy snail thing, or ammonite possibly, in the bottom corner. I should think it's more of a snail. But um, so charming. <laughs> and again, the sort of simplified uh, seaweed in the in the bottom there. Give it a nice kid-friendly... Um, appeal (laughs) yes i mean this really this book is squarely aimed towards children um there's no doubting that it's funny the clouds actually remind me of the original super mario brothers we had the (laughs) clouds sprites in the sky i i i love (laughs) i love the the cultural melding that we get on our podcast i think it's wonderful there's none other like it anyway that's completely irrelevant though um oh and the ichthyos there's an ichthyosaur family I think. I think that's what it's meant to be. Um, yeah, it is. Little baby ichthyosaur swimming along. Yeah. See, it's just... Sweet. Yeah. And a squid in the bottom the bottom yeah. right. And there's no T-Rex, is there? Or even a Megalosaurus or anything? No, there's there's only a T-Rex skeleton, and that's that's it for theropods. I mean, this, by any standards, I think, is highly unusual, even for a children's dinosaur book that doesn't come from a, a paleo artist. I mean, T-Rex is just... Where's the terrible meat eating? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm also yeah, this is highly unusual. Oh, my theropods. Oh, there's, there is an ornithomimosaur um, running away with a huge egg. <laughs> um, there's a bit of confusion again between Orviraptor and um, an ornithomimosaur. Or stru- well, it's actually a struthiomimus, it does say. Yes, um, and, and uh, by the feet of the T-Rex skeleton is a compsognathus in the flesh, which is also a strange touch. Although I guess at that yeah. scale, um, its skeleton would be extremely hard to draw. So <laughs> it's easy well, just to put in a slightly well, vague, there is uh, that. fleshed out one. That's what I think was going on there. I also like the uh, the funny sticking out tooth on the glyptodon, by the way. Oh, that glyptodon. <laughs> Sorry, 
That is it's wonderful. So sweet. It. Isn't it? Yeah, it looks looks like such a dorky looking thing with its sticking yeah. out teeth. And I, I love I love the big uh the big fluffy mammals as well, your your megatherium with its huge tongue. Yeah, which again was a bit of a sort of trope. I mean, didn't the doesn't the Crystal Palace model have a tongue like that? Yeah, it does, out? yeah. Yes. And the mammoth which looks remarkably like a cave painting. <laughs> uh, I mean it's hard to avoid that though, isn't it? With True. a mammoth. Yeah, especially yeah. with the horses in the background. You say it's hard to avoid that, but then if you go for a kind of more realistic style, it doesn't necessarily end up looking like a cave painting very much. Just no, no, but I mean, but I mean, in the context of someone like Hilary Stebbing, who is illustrating in this yeah. much more simplified way, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's probably going to be hard to avoid looking like a cave painting in a good way. <laughs> in, oh, in a good way. In a good way. I actually find it very charming. Again, but, yeah, the mammals are all cute as well. I mean, that Megatherium is so happy. Very charming. And uh, somebody in the comments pointed out, you know, it was just after the war. And the extreme sweetness and innocence of this work maybe works as uh, a bit of a remedy to that. I, I agree. I mean, b back in, in episode 17, um, when we talked about uh, Russell Francis Peterson's illustrations, um, I mentioned um, that... That his work for, for that book by Dalian Geis uh, recalled the work of Ludwig Bemelmans of, of the Madeleine books. Um, and I yeah. would say, again, yeah. by virtue of their working at a uh, almost contemporaneously, um, I would say that there is much of that same vein here in, in, in Hilary Stebbing's illustrations here as well. Um, there is that uh, just that the joy of creating an illustration. Um, in the in these pictures and it's it's so redolent of the mid-century you look at it and you recognize it immediately yes and and that uh, together with the fact that that she uh, is or what was uh, a children's illustrator by trade um, makes all of this just a, a really elegant charming children's book and i think yeah i think as i said before it's 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 worth our looking at it through that lens rather than as uh, an example of paleo art with a capital P. So. Yes, definitely. Now, here's my interview with Zubin, who speaks about various influences, pin-ups, horror art, fantasy art, the paleo artists that influence him, and what he's up to now and in the future. So I'm speaking with Zubin. Yes. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, and here's talk about some of your artwork, which does feature, as has been noted by a few uh, trolling people on Facebook, it does feature tyrannosaurs quite a lot of the time. Yes, a lot of tyrannosaurids, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is fine in my book. I mean, they are objectively the best dinosaurs. So obviously no problems for me at all. Um, but it's not fair to say that you're, in, you're all tyrannosaurs all the time, um, even in peaches, peaches, <laughs> even in pieces that do heavily feature tyrannosaurs. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot going on in the background, the surrounding flora and fauna that you might not necessarily notice at first glance if your eyes drawn to the tyrannosaurs. But, you know, I mean, your piece that was picked up by Tom Holtz has got turtles and um, dromaeosaurs and all sorts of things. Oh, but yeah, I'm getting definitely. ahead of myself. Mm -hmm. um, so your background obviously you studied um is it you studied illustration 
I did, yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you have formal training in illustration. Mm -hmm. um, so nowadays, are you producing many uh, commission pieces? I mean, um, I know you have a another job as well. Uh, oh, I just want to say, um, currently, I just uh, illustrate for fun to pass the time, mostly. That's fair enough. I, I do yeah. this for fun, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> Don't get but, paid, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but people on pay, uh, Patreon, I do get paid very, very tiny amounts very occasionally. But, oh, they uh, do, yeah. But, but basically, it's for fun. Um, and I definitely blog for fun. Mm -hmm. So, but any case... It's all about me. Uh, so you're doing it for fun, which means you are turning out um, a remarkable body of work for somebody who's doing it purely as a hobby. I mean, um, one thing that's quite impressive about it in particular is that it's um, rather well-researched. And I guess one thing to ask would be where all your reference material is coming from. Um, I note that in one piece, you, you mentioned using the um, PNSO T-Rex and the Eofauna Triceratops for sort of perspective and shading that was your um that was going full metal i think um, uh, it is yeah which is it's just a great oh, it one. was yes yeah yeah um but you must have quite a few uh skeletal references to hand where, where do you go for your um reference material when you put together these pieces well i go to uh mainly where everyone goes to like scott hartman or uh greg paul yeah and the yeah the usual they're very reliable and it's there. Uh, Work is usually very easy to access online, but yeah. in terms of like uh, actual like a three D reference for perspective and lighting, I try my best to go to like uh, other paleo artists who produce really reliable artwork, namely sculptures like David Krenz. Yeah, I have quite a few of his sculptures in my collection, which I do use regularly for uh, reference material. Okay, which is quite understandable. Um, a good source as well, obviously. Uh... We all have David Krentz. <laughs> he starts to impeccably research. Yes. Um, I suppose that then leads to the inevitable who your influences are. And I know that one of your influence, one of your key influences is uh, Louise Ray, because you mentioned meeting him and how he was a hero of yours. Mm -hmm. Who Definitely. else would you cite? Um, uh, who else I would cite? Uh, Douglas Henderson, for sure. I think everybody would cite him. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, Greg Paul, David Krantz, as I mentioned earlier, Michael Skrepnik, I can't remember how to pronounce his name, the Canadian paleo artist. Yeah. Uh, hey. Julius Satani. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you recall Angie Rodriguez. Yes. Yeah. Rodriguez. Mm. I, I mean, do I love her, her, her color palettes she chooses for her dinosaurs. And then I suppose artistically as well. I mean, obviously... <laughs> Um, clearly some of those are artistic influences but artistic influences outside of paleo arts um, we were all speculating in our group chat that you probably name some fantasy artists and one in particular uh, but any any fantasy artists that you particularly admire that you feel you feel do you feel their work has fed into your your paleo art at all uh, I wouldn't say just fantasy artists, but uh, definitely uh, artists like uh, Boris Vallejo, Frank Franzetta, uh, Julie Bell, like John Howe from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, Franzetta was the one that we all mentioned. The serious said, I suppose, because he's so famous. So yeah, definitely Frank Franzetta. And obviously, there is a blend. I mean, most of the stuff, for example, on your art station, it's uh, straight paleo art, as in there are no 
completely fantastical elements. I mean, we can uh, we can have arguments over the fabulous Tarbosaurus main, but um, it's not a completely fantastical element. Whereas, of course, in some other pieces, though, you have inserted um, modern day humans, shall we say, uh, into the piece. So clearly, yes, absolutely. I was going to say, so you can see. Um, but at the same time, the the dinosaurs in those pieces aren't fantastical. They do adhere to um, our knowledge of the animals. One thing, other thing that we discussed was how mm-hmm. a lot of your creatures look gnarly, uh, which is perhaps uh, <laughs> simplifying things a bit. But your um, your well, the T Rex in particular, mm-hmm. the uh, the male T Rex, and I, I do enjoy the fact that you employ you have sort of characters that appear or individuals that appear in multiple of your pieces so you're depicting the same individual explicitly yeah so you have the t-rex called a uh, halusha yeah that's right appears in yeah mm-hmm. appears in various pieces including one that you um finished off recently yes um just yeah looking at us rather sinisterly and yeah you've the ornamentation on the face of the t-rex so the cranial sort of um bosses and everything are mm-hmm. maybe a bit more exaggerated than we tend to see i mean perhaps mm-hmm. not the most extreme we've ever seen but they if you compare it to um the majority of the art out there they're a bit more spiky and exaggerated and gnarly mm-hmm. and i'm wondering what influenced you to take that direction with the um with the tyrannosaurs in particular well i wanted to imagine them like they were real animals that we could observe and uh, why would we have named this animal the genus named tyrannosaurus and species named rex so i thought maybe it had um very regal sort of integument on its head, like a crown. So maybe that's where it got its name Rex, if this were a real animal, the actually living animal that we saw in real life currently. So that was my thinking behind the really ornate uh, bosses and uh, horn lids on the on the top of the head. That's interesting. Um, and of course, I suppose you're still naturally trying to keep it um, plausible. You're not yeah. going completely crazy piece but at the same time you are yeah making them more um crown like uh what's yes. the word i'm looking for here okay a, a corona um that's an unfortunate word actually I forgot to say that yes the, uh, <laughs> more, more, more like a spiky crown on their heads and i suppose that um ties in as well with the uh often quite lion-like mane that you apply i mean not, not always as exaggerated as that tarbosaurus you produced recently mm-hmm. yeah um, not normally a bit more subdued than that but yes, this um, this sort of mane of or crest of feathers coming back from the, from the head mm-hmm. is that is that again to do with making them uh, the, the, tying with the idea of well the name and if we were around then what well I suppose more working backwards from the name mm-hmm. is that is that again I mean are you explicitly are you trying to explicitly link them to lions and sort of cultural perceptions there uh, to some extent yeah. Like uh, okay. uh, the name uh, Halushka is um, a Native American name, and it basically means fighter. So I wanted to channel um, the idea of uh, an old warrior from uh, the New World, basically. Yeah, that's a. I, I didn't know that, and that's really interesting. I know you mentioned it. Um, mm. Makes perfect sense. It ties in with um, the animal being scarred and beaten up in a lot of the a lot of the paintings. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's one here. Uh, is it actually is it Halushka in? It is in in the smell of rain. Um, yes, it is. Yeah, 
which is a lovely piece and uh, one of the ones that really illustrates how you put a lot of attention into the backgrounds mm-hmm. and the composition, which a lot of paleo artists don't, which again, I think shows the script influence, the, sorry for mispronouncing his name again, for the, uh, <laughs> and, and the Henderson influence and the way you put attention into the backgrounds. And yeah. you've got, um, again, Ankylosaurus in there as well, proving, albeit in the background, proving you're not all Tyrannosaurs all the time. But um, I'll go back to the point I was trying to make. Um, the uh, the T Rex's face is very scarred and beaten up. It has sort of uh, exposed teeth and uh, like um, gouges in its in its snout. Yeah. So they're yeah tying it in with the idea of a a regal fighter, a warrior king, if you like. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so I mean, would you say that perhaps? Would you argue that some, or even indeed, even most paleo art makes the animals too clean? Um, maybe not not as beaten up as they could be. I mean, certainly going back historically, there's been a tendency to make them very uh, sort of perfect in a way, like they were zoo animals. <laughs> um, is that something you're sort of trying to consciously correct in your images or um, just something you've arrived at independently uh no that's you pretty much hit it on the head just now um a lot of paleo that i've noticed the animals look too pristine they look like generic um fresh off the factory floor sort of uh creatures basically there are no real imperfections or anything that uh real world animals probably would have i've seen a lot of uh images of uh lions crocodiles that have all sorts of weird scars that really make it look like they've been through the ringer over the course of their lives. Like crocodiles missing chunks of their tail or even missing limbs. So I try to incorporate those kind of ideas into uh, my uh, creature designs. Well, character designs, you could say, since these are individual characters a lot of the time. Yeah, well, some of them are individual characters, but at the same time, Mm -hmm. they are pieces of paleo art. I mean, as I said... I quite like the idea that you explicitly have the same individual in different paintings, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to a lot of artists in the past who've just de facto had the same individual or it's felt like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've said in the past that particularly happened where artists copy one another or basically, well, a lot of artists just copied civic. So you end up with these oh. civic dinosaurs going off on adventures. So, you know, as a kid, I would imagine these, uh, dinosaurs from the illustration encyclopedia going off and having adventures in other books kind of thing uh, <laughs> in different situations i mean it's, it's a good it, idea i like that idea <laughs> um but it's kind of nice to see that done explicitly going back to the smell of carrion because that did feature in the press release for a paper by tom holtz which was published in the canadian journal of earth sciences and was entitled yep. therapod gill structure and tyrannosaurid niche simulation hypothesis implication of predatory dinosaur macroecology and ontogeny in late cretaceous asia america <gasps> so um <laughs> so, so presumably um how, how did that come about i mean is that the first of all is that the only um illustration so far that you've had that's been uh used in a press release or paper in that way or have there been others uh, in the press release, this would be the first. Uh, but in terms of papers, I have a couple of illustrations that have been published in uh, Nature and Plus One. All right. Uh, one is not on my site. It's actually uh, invertebrate. I drew for some researchers um, in 2017, I believe. The lead author was Jacob Vinter. Right. And more recently, uh, I have uh, some uh, freshwater North American coelacanths that appeared in uh, Plus One, I believe. 
Okay, so not dinosaurs at all. But nope, uh, nope. no, other animals. See, you can do things aside from tyrannosaurs. <laughs> Everyone runs you doing tyrannosaurs all the time. Little do they know. Uh, there is something that's uh, hopefully going to be published in the next few months. I finished it last year in July, but it's still under embargo. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully it'll be ready by the end of this year. And it, it does involve Hell Creek uh, non-avian dinosaurs. That's all I'll say about it. Hell Creek non-avian dinosaurs. But yeah. Not T-Rex. Not T-Rex. No, not T-Rex. <laughs> not T-Rex. But, uh, okay, you can say that yeah. about it too. So I can say go. that about it, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it could be anything. It could be Edmontosaurus, it could be Triceratops. It could be, it could be uh, anything, yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it could be anything. Um, well, they're going to have to wait for that one. Wait for the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, are you starting to get more interest in now from um, from paleontologists who want to use your work uh, or commission work? Uh, I have, actually, yes. It's, yeah, and mm. I think deservedly so. So, I mean... Yeah, very interesting. I said I was only aware of the uh, the Holtz thing, so it's good to hear you're getting some uh, some other interest. Um, and indeed, with non-dinosaur stuff, because as I just said, it's not just tyrannosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I was, yeah, one other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mentioned speculative integuments, um, sometimes very speculative, most of the time within the realms of what we normally see. Uh, I mean, yeah, the... Ter- the uh, Halushka has quite a luxurious uh, mane, but not so much yeah. as the uh, as Fabio the Tarbosaurus. <laughs> yeah, um, but and yeah, you have things like furry Nanoxaurus, which is, I mean, prehistoric planet did that too. It seems fair. Yeah. and we know Tyrannosaurus were feathered. Um, so yeah, some speculative integument going on there, and also some speculative behaviour in some of your pieces, which mm-hmm. I mean, no doubt you, you know, all yesterday's will have to be mentioned. But uh, one thing, though, I found a piece of yours by scrolling down about three times. I say it like I'm a detective or something. Um, So there's a piece on your art station page called Prometheus from 2016. Oh, yes, Prometheus, uh, the Pyroraptor. (laughs) Yeah, so quite an early one as well, as far as your um, art station stuff goes anyway. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it features Pyroraptor with sort of, um, I mean, I know it's being lit by the flames, but it does have quite... Um, reddish, gingerish uh, feathers. Yeah. Um, so in that in that respect, it's somewhat similar to that movie um, that came out recently. We don't talk about. But, oh, that movie! I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah but, but but more importantly, <laughs> is the fact is the behaviour you've depicted it um, mm-hmm. doing, mm-hmm. taking part in, which is trying to spread forest fires by grabbing a flaming branch, moving it somewhere else. Which of yeah. course we saw <laughs> in Prehistoric Planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With, I think it was a troodon that did it, yep. um, and that's so. There you go. Clearly, the um, derination. All everyone behind Prehistoric Planet was browsing through your uh, social media, you know, to just nab that idea of you. I think. There well, we the idea for this came from the same thing as the um, the Tyrannosaurus head integument thing, where Pyroraptor Olympius, the fire thief of Olympus. So I thought, oh, that's Prometheus. Yeah. Well, so, also the, the, the behavior itself, of course, comes from some modern uh, raptors. Yeah, the Australian raptors, yeah. Yeah, I say of course, and I didn't know this until a few months ago. Uh, but yeah, it comes from modern raptors, and I imagine that's where uh, Prehistoric Planet got the idea from as well, or whether they uh, yeah, some modern behavior they're inspired by. But it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very interesting to see that you portrayed it years prior. So clearly you're, uh, you know, you're ahead of the curve in some respects, <laughs> I think. Depicting this behavior. 
Mm. Um, and yeah, I suppose and more recently you've had herbivores eating meat. Mm-hmm. Um, you had a, a wonderfully violent piece you put out very recently with uh, two protoceratops and they're attacking some kind of uh, small alliaramine tyrannosaur. Yeah. <laughs> Which has its had its mouth open at a 90 degree angle in some horrific scream. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting piece. I mean, that's, yeah, there's that and the uh, Elimontosaur, was it, where they were, which is eating dromaeosaur chicks. Yeah. I think. So, I mean, it's not the, f- what's, what brought this on, <laughs> basically? What, why are you uh, being so horrible to theropods all of a sudden, having done, having served them so well? Well, I'd say it's an equal opportunity uh, see this when it comes to my <laughs> subjects. <laughs> um, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, it is a common phenomenon where we have um, herbivores basically munching down on small animals. Right, so I, I thought, mean, why not play with that? You don't often see that in Paleoars, so why not play around with that idea? I think, I mean, there are a few people who've been doing it i think sort of post all yesterdays um mm-hmm. the immunsaur one though fascinated me in particular because mm-hmm. it is explicitly herbivore picking up and munching on um small carnivores mm-hmm. i mean the the, the pretty one you could argue is them defending themselves um yeah. if it weren't for the description you gave but yeah, that, that one is definitely hadrosaur eating some small theropods which r- reminds me of sort of the footage you see of cows picking up and eating chicks in a in a farmyard you know, oh yeah um, very disturbing Just, images, yeah. Yeah, for the protein. And yeah. it isn't the case that sheep do it too on certain uh, islands. They'll go around and eat um, chicks that are on the ground. Yeah. It really reminded me of that. I uh, thought it was very interesting. Mm, There's one more of. in the works that uh, you might be interested in. It's the um, same series. It's um, a Denversaurus uh, raiding a crocodile nest. It's currently in the sketch stages. <laughs> yeah. I'm interesting to see. Um, yeah, on the crocodiles, by the way, I did like, and again, it has a bit more of a, uh, slightly sketchy illustration feel to it, but it's, it's from 2020, but, uh, the, the dinosuchus dragging a tail behind it. Oh yes, that one. Yeah. Oh yes, that one. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that the one you're not happy with? No, I oh. like that one. No, it's a, it was a suggestion by someone online about, on a video of an alligator dragging a carcass with a bunch of vultures just following it along. So I so, thought it made a suggestion yeah. of uh, doing a uh, Mesozoic version with uh, one of the Cretaceous megacrocs. Another thing I want to ask, since you mention illustrating coelacanths and invertebrates, I mean, some people might just know you from, as I did until very recently, <laughs> from this, uh, from the dinosaur work. That's what's drawn us in. But um, is are there places we can go and check out some of your other work, other subjects um, online anywhere? And I mean, what what other things are you fond of illustrating? Is it predominantly dinosaurs, or is it dinosaurs? Are they in there? But there's also you know a good range of other subjects, not not just the women, obviously, <laughs> but other things. <laughs> we know about the women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I do love pinup art. It's probably one of my bigger influences as well. It's probably influenced the way I pose my theropods as well. Oh, that's interesting. Stylistically, yeah, because I tend to draw my theropods in, if you notice, in a lot of portrait style uh, orientations. Yes, yeah, yeah. I noticed that. 
So I that probably stems from my pinup background as well, because that really uh, has taught me how to properly compose a, a figure within a very confined upright space. I, okay, that's yeah. yeah that's, that's not one I've heard before. Because um, I think I've noticed most uh, uh, artists they tend to uh, depict their therapists in more landscape orientations. They do, whereas yeah. I do have a tendency to uh, kind of uh, depict them kind of in more of a or upright orientation and a portrait orientation. Yeah, yeah, that's. I suppose the obvious things to do is portray them. I mean, post you know nineteen seventy something to portray them in, in landscape because they're horizontal. Um, yeah. So it's interesting that you have this great focus on, um, well, portrait paintings, and that comes from your fondness of pinup art which is yeah yeah it's probably it's, it's not something you should every day <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, oh, yeah. it's unusual and interesting i mean um yeah maybe, maybe we need to see more attempts at um portraying theropods accurately but in a in portrait mode you know we can get some a lot more uh interesting unusual compositions out of them that way i think oh definitely yeah i think so which can you make it the most of um but Yes, besides besides the the pinups and the um, dinosaurs, mm-hmm. what else is there? Anything else that you're fond of uh, illustrating, or that you spend a good deal of time? Uh... Um, mostly uh, for me, it's the dinosaurs. The the uh, the tarantulas are what um, usually inspire me to draw, uh, to doodle. But on occasion, I might do some more modern animals like uh, modern crocodilians or uh, big cats. Usually, like to draw maybe a lion or two once in a while, once in the blue moon, basically. Yeah, and there's, there's a saber tooth on your page uh, as well. So, um, along with, I just noticed uh, quite a nice fish, um, although it's being about to be eaten <laughs> by Sarcosuchus. But uh, uh, I think I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, we we already heard a bit about what you're working on now. You work. Mm-hmm. We have been working on this piece that we can't talk about yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but other than it's a Hell Creek dinosaurs that aren't T Rex. Mm-hmm. Um, which yeah, we can we can speculate, but is there? I mean, what else are you working on right now? Is there anything uh, anything you can talk about? You can't talk about? Um... Oh, well, a few things I can talk about. Uh, definitely can. Uh, I'm working on some uh, Halloween theme pieces that I'm hoping to get finished by Halloween. Uh, which I find difficult to do because I need to plan at least a few months ahead of schedule to actually get it done on time. So. And I do love uh, doing stuff for Halloween. I do like horror art. Yeah. Which, which is another kind of big influence. I do love horror artists like... Um, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Jacob Rosalski. Um, his online handle is Mr. Werewolf. I don't know if you've ever seen his artwork. Uh, no, but now I want to Google it. So Yeah, he's a Polish uh, digital artist. He does a lot of great horror artwork. And I do love horror art. It's one of my big influences currently. Yeah, That's where I get the moodiness that. from. Yeah. yeah, you see that in quite a few of the um, dinosaur pieces where they're staring down at the uh, the viewer. Yeah. Um, and they have those glowing eyes glowing in the night. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm just looking up Mr. W- Mr. Werewolf. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah, it's got a lot of uh, sci-fi influence stuff as well. It does, yeah. Um, a lot of uh, steampunk. Yeah. World War yeah. One steampunk, yeah. Yeah, look, look, that's some kind of World War One mech. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. just interesting. <laughs> wow. This is good something for me to... Um, scroll through tonight right oh yeah definitely the these horror artists they have some a really great sense of uh atmosphere and mood which is why i like looking at their 
work for our uh, reference. Okay. So, all right, so we've got some Halloween pieces. Um, and any other sort of papers that you're working on, or, or well, part rather pieces linked to papers at the moment? Or? Uh, there's one uh, I'm kind of uh, in negotiations with, but I am not sure if it's going to come through or not. But it is uh, it does involve theropods. This is what I'll say about it. Okay, involves theropods. Yeah. Um, I suppose not as so anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I was going to ask was, I mean. It's not fair to say that you you illustrate entirely tyrannosaurs, but you do illustrate a lot of tyrannosaurs, and yeah. uh, much as I like them, I, I did wonder if there is there any chance of seeing uh, something like an abelisaur from you, because I think that would be that would really play to your strengths. I mean, the obvious one would be Carnotaurus, given the horror <laughs> thing, devil horns and all that, but even something else like I don't know Majungasaurus or anything. I think something because they have such gnarly, weird faces. I really think that would play to your strengths immensely. I mean, any plans to do anything like that? I do have a Carnotaurus I've was been working on for the past two years. It's kind of been sitting on the back burner, but yeah, it's basically just a little portrait I did. Uh, I think uh, last year during one of my clinical rotations during a break at a psychiatric facility. So go figure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's been sitting on the back burner. I've been kind of putting it off, but I think I could squeeze that in for uh, something that's horror themed because it does have the right imposing angle of it looking down at something and they do look properly weird from the front um, yeah they I mean, do look really weird heads, yeah sort of the extreme narrowness of the face and the fact that the mm. face is so short um yeah and, and that shallow lower jaw they just look very very strange mm-hmm. um what, what about carcarodontosaurs too i mean that, that, again that'd be another Good fit for you, I think, given that they had lots of bosses on their faces. And you know, honestly, the the carcarodontosaurus is kind of like to me the most un, the most unappealing theropods. Oh, what really? was that? Uh, I find it to be kind of like the uh, your generic, typical large theropods. There's nothing really special to them about uh, to me about them. Ooh, yeah. I don't know. I know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, come back to like because my favorite theropods are like the tyrannosaurs, dromaeosaurs, spinosaurs, abelosaurs. Then the Cacodonosaurs are like, uh, I don't know, they're just kind of there. Well, fair enough. I mean, what about something like Acrocanthosaurus, which at least has the spine, you know, high neural spines going on? I have done an Acrocanthosaurus once. Uh, it was for a, a class assignment for a, a book. Basically, I did, I did some illustrations based on Raptor Red. Okay. Um, so- it's a few years old. It's, um, it's called The Opposition. It's on DeviantArt, though, if you can spot it there. Yeah, okay. What what about more, I mean, there are some ankylosaurs in your work already, but again, it feels like something, if you can be bothered to sit down and draw all that armor, you know, bit by bit, then again, it could be something that plays to your strengths and, you know, because they're not oh. enough anyway. <laughs> yeah, they uh, are. I have nightmares because I interned with uh, Jim Kirkland back in 2013 for a month uh, with him drawing ankylosaurs under his supervision and yeah, the the armor is a nightmare to get right. <laughs> yeah, I have nightmares about that. It's it's uh, quite harrowing. <laughs> oh, there we go. You interned for Jim Kirkland's. I That's did. Little, yeah, uh... I got to work on the Utahraptor uh, family death block back in the day. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's quite something. Yeah, um, I, I put that on my resume every every time. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, also good that people, more and more people, are um, approaching you for paleo art because, as I said, I think it's well deserved. I think um, your stuff, your work deserves to be widely known. 
um, especially love the the mood, the horror influences, and unbeknownst to me until now, the pinup influences, which actually <laughs> it makes a lot of sense in terms of um, interesting, quite original and dynamic uh, compositions. Mm-hmm. So yeah, thanks for um, thanks for the interview, and mm. I guess uh, I'll give you a chance to plug where people might find you on the internet. Well, I can be found on DeviantArt at Amherst Dino. That's, that would be the handle. And also at OzStation. And I do have a Facebook and Instagram page where that's where I regularly post uh, works in progress. And I am probably going to open up a Redbubble store soon to have little stickers and uh, maybe small prints. Yeah, nice. Maybe the odd, uh, I mean, portrait pieces would lend themselves well to t-shirts as well so you could consider mm. that perhaps <laughs> i just found a piece in your deviant art where there's a dromiosaur like ripping bits out of a bachycephalosaur that... oh yes that was oh yes that was inspired by uh i think a video of a sickly elk with a eagle sitting on his back just pulling out chunks of it all right so again um Nature can come up with far more gruesome things than your imagination ever can. Oh, definitely it can. Definitely. And I, I looked at nature to like get some ideas and I kind of toned it down for the internet. It, it is really funny because you look at some of these and think, oh, that's just over the top. And then he, and he actually, you know, speaking with you as well, I saw this documentary clip where and it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. Good grief. Yes. Thank you very much for chatting with me. I thank you for having me on. Well, thanks again to Zubin for speaking. With yes, thanks, Zubin. And uh, we uh, we wish you all the best in the future. Good luck. Thank everyone again for listening. If you made it all the way to the end, then well done. You are one of the probably 3% of people that actually listen to us going on and on for the full hour. Um, <laughs> I, I just made that up. I mean, I don't. I mean, obviously, Niels has all the stats. But, I mean, I know of a handful of regulars but other than that, I don't know who else listens in. Or Thank you to our regulars. If you're not a regular, why aren't you? <laughs> you become a regular immediately. In fact, by listening to this, we now have your email address and know where you live. I mean, so this episode definitely convinced everybody who's listened this far to keep on listening and to, you know, dive, dive into our archives and, and binge the whole thing all at once. Uh, or save it and spread it out more. There's no wrong way to listen to podcasts. It- if you have a spare day, then listen to Get Up at Midnight and to every episode of our podcast all the way through. Trying to yes. fall asleep. No toilet breaks. You have I mean, to I'm not, not actually going to say how many listeners we have, but you, you wouldn't be disappointed. Oh, nice. Well, anyway, um, it's been very good speaking with you again, also with Zubin. Um, enjoyed the unusual vintage panel up this week. Next yes. time, this month rather, next time it's back to um, generic 1980s books probably. Uh, but I, I think but this month is really good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we probably should. Yes. Yes, uh, thanks for potting. And uh, it's, been, uh, it's been lovely as always. And we will see everyone again next month, hopefully. Yes. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. Your hosts were Nati Himapan, Mark Vincent, and me, Niels Hasborg. You can find all links and images we discussed today on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurs and on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. 
If you want to give us your support, please give us a comment or a good review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also support us at patreon.com slash LITC. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, look after each other, and we hope to see you again soon. <laughs>